this is a lecture I, I really like a lot. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, uh, sometimes on the podcast, like we have the last few weeks, we run down a lot of errors, or in that case, non-errors, little quick takes on mistakes or or non-mistakes that people make. But this week, we're going to do one of our deeper dive podcasts. We're going to talk about one word. Right. Rose. How did this come about? Well, uh, it started, oddly enough, with the Common Errors in English Usage website. A company that makes video courses contacted me because they had seen my work on that site and thought that maybe I would be willing to offer a course for them. And what they wanted was a writing course. Now, the first thing I said back is that I'm not a writing teacher. I did teach composition at one time when we were early in my career, and I wasn't sure exactly what kind of writing they wanted. But my first question was, I don't think this is the right course for me, but who would grade the papers? And they said, oh, no papers. You just talk about writing. And I didn't even get into negotiation enough to determine whether they meant technical writing, um, creative writing, essay writing, writing papers for school. You know, there are all kinds of things. They're different disciplines. And they have nothing to do with writing about usage. Well, I wouldn't say nothing, but very little to do with it. Um, some people just lump all these things together and call it English, and that's good. <laughs> but that's not the case in the profession. But I was excited by the prospect because the, these people have a big reach and they were willing to fly me back to Washington, D.C. to record a trial lecture and pay me really pretty big bucks and they pay fine royalties and, you know, altogether sounded like a great deal. But I said, okay, I really can't teach a writing class that doesn't include any writing and I can't teach a writing class at all, but I would love to teach a class that I have taught in person at the university level for years that I invented called Love in the Arts. And this is something that combines my love for interdisciplinary studies and the history of ideas. So I'd start with the Song of Songs in the Bible and ancient Egyptian love lyrics, and then go up through different cultures and centuries, not tracing every step of the way, of course, selecting great works. Um, troubadour songs, for instance, Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, and uh, I did uh, Verdi's La Traviata, one of my favorite operas. And uh, we had end with West Side Story and a unit on classic American pop love songs of the 30s and 40s. So it was extremely varied course. And I'd done a lot of reading. I also did visual arts in that. We, so we had sculptures and paintings. And um, we did oh, ballet. We did uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And then um, the Prokofiev ballet and West Side Story. So we had the three versions of Romeo and Juliet in a row. But um, I said, I'd, what I'd really like to do is something connected with this course. And I said, well, we have some humanities courses already, 
but we'd be happy to listen to a sample if you wanted to make one about a half hour long. So I did, and um, I was thinking about the fact that it surprised me when I started going looking at love poetry in detail historically that the image of the rose as comparing a woman to a rose, particularly to a rose bud, um, wasn't really all that flattering, as you might think. I mean, we associate roses with love, of course. But the Roman tradition that gets revived during the Renaissance was pretty startling. So I decided that would be fun to play with. And so I did quite a bit of research and put it together, sent the result off to them. And they got it and said, well, this sounds terrific. I'm really impressed. I liked your delivery. Of course, I had edited out all the ums and hums and stumbles and stuff. But... um, they said, but we still think that what we really need is a writing course. And at that point, I threw up my hands and said, oh, well, sorry, I can't satisfy this demand. So I had this lecture sitting around. This is after I'd retired. And so I couldn't use it in the classroom, didn't have a classroom anymore. So I tried various venues to see if I could get anybody interested in listening to this. And I finally lucked out with the local garden club. And, um, of course, they weren't necessarily in the mood. And the problem with this is, as you'll hear from it, is that uh, if you're a a woman of advanced age, as most of these women were, um, you might find this intriguing. You might find it offensive. So some of them seem kind of frowny (laughs) during the presentation. And I've given it just once again at the local senior center. And that time, uh, just hardly anybody showed up for it. So I'm um, always looking for a wider audience because this is a lecture I, I really like a lot. I enjoyed putting it together, and I think it says something important. And so I was thinking, well, let's uh, put it into the podcast. Well, I find it interesting. And uh, let's, for our listeners, remember that common errors in English usage and identifying usage points does not necessarily make you a good writer. There are a lot of other things that go into it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's just one part of it, uh, a little mechanical part that's really important. But uh, I think thinking about things deeply can make you a better writer. The other thing about this project is that I love reading aloud. This gave me a chance to read poetry allowed for an audience and um, most of the things that I've worked on over the years I've managed in one way or another either to get published as articles or books or to publish on the web the problem with this one is it has copyrighted poems in it that I can't just put up on the web and uh, they should be fair use but fair use has been whittled down to almost nothing in recent years so I have to deliver it in speech in some way or another well uh that's a great warm-up to the whole thing. A lot of interesting ideas coming up, and uh, why don't we roll it? Okay. This is Paul Bryans recording a lecture called When is a Rose Not a Rose? Romeo says to Juliet, That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, which raises the question, just how sweet is a rose anyway? Or, to put it another way, if a man compares a woman to a rose, should she be flattered? Today, roses are especially associated with romance. 
What is a surer token of affection than a gift of a dozen long-stemmed red roses delivered to the beloved's door? Or think of the silver rose given to the fiancé in Richard Strauss's opera De Rosenkavalier. But roses have had a host of different meanings. Although many sources will tell you that roses were introduced into Europe in the 18th century from China, this is true only of certain showy cultivated varieties. Wild roses grew widely in Europe and in the Americas and were noted for their beauty and fragrance from ancient times. Most frequently they were connected in the arts in some way or other with women or female principles. The Egyptians associated roses with the goddess Isis. Cleopatra is said to have slept in a bed strewn with roses. The classical Greeks associated the rose with Aphrodite, the Romans with Venus. In the Middle Ages, the Virgin Mary adopted several of the characteristics of Venus, including the title Star of the Sea, the so-called evening star, the planet Venus, but also the rose. In Christian use, a thornless rose came to symbolize Mary's virginity and stand for innocence generally. One scholar even argued that before the fall from perfection, the roses in the Garden of Eden would have been free of thorns. A 14th century hymn to Mary often heard today at Christmas time begins, There is no rose of such virtue as is the rose that bear Jesu. On a less exalted level, the rose is the metaphorical symbol of the desired love object in the hugely influential medieval French allegory, The Romance of the Rose, by Guillaume de Loris and Jean de Mont, translated in part by Geoffrey Chaucer. In Persian and Turkish poetry, roses are connected with women, but also with mystical love of the divine and with pure innocence. Roses are often referred to in the poems of writers such as Rumi and Hafiz, and the same shift occurred in Europe, with roses being used in various forms of esoteric worship, including Rosicrucianism, a mystical doctrine whose name means Rose Cross. The most exalted use of the rose as a mystical image occurs at the climax of Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, when the pilgrim has a vision of God surrounded by the heavenly hosts in the form of an enormous glowing white rose. The circular rose is such a pervasive image that it lends its name to label objects of the same shape, such as the compass rose or the rose window in a Gothic church. The rose was also used in heraldry, and the conflict between the 14th century House of York, whose symbol was a white blossom, and the House of Lancaster, symbolized by a red one, was known as the War of the Roses, not to be confused with the modern Tournament of Roses in Pasadena. In Rome, a meeting to discuss confidential matters from which the public was excluded was marked by a rose being placed on the door outside the room, so such discussions were called Sub Rosa, Under the Rose and the phrase persists today to label secretive doings. Faced with this bewildering array of meanings, we may be tempted to say that sometimes, as Gertrude Stein wrote, rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. But the thread of meaning we are going to trace today is a much narrower and less exalted one, the rose as symbol of the transitory nature of youthful beauty. A late Roman writer called Floris probably because of his many poems on roses, presents what would become the classic formula in a poem beginning Venerunt Aliquando Rosae, here translated by James J. Wilhelm. One day some roses came, genius of the gentle spring, 
Day one, and we saw the points of those flowers. Day two, and those pyramids swelled to a greater bud. Day three came the baskets. The fourth day marked the end of that toil. They die today, unless they're plucked in the morning. The seemingly sweet and delicate words of these lines convey a stinging message. The points referred to are rosebuds. They represent the young woman the poet is courting. He's telling her that while she is young and attractive, she is desirable. But if she resists his advances too long, her looks will fade and no one will want her. The moral? Do it now. If you doubt this interpretation of the poem, listen again, this time noting the progression from admiration to disdain as the flower opens and then wilts. One day some roses came, genius of the gentle spring. Day one, and we saw the points of those flowers. Day two, and those pyramids swelled to a greater bud. Day three came the baskets. The fourth day marked the end of that toil. They die today unless they're plucked in the morning. This pattern becomes the dominant theme of poetry, usually associated with the theme called carpe diem, seize the day. Robin Williams neglected to explain this to his students in the Dead Poets Society, but carpe diem poetry traditionally has less to do with personal growth and exploration than with seduction. An anonymous late Roman poem known as the Vigil of Venus takes the form of a hymn to the goddess of love, like the Flores poem, it associates the opening of rosebuds with the loss of virginity. Note that in Greco-Roman mythology, the color of the rose is also associated with the blood of Venus, here referred to as the Paphian, because the island of Paphos was one of several places she was said to have been born. Roses are also said to be made from the kisses of her son Cupid and to symbolize the blushing cheeks of bashful virgins. The stanza begins with Venus as a nature goddess, causing spring showers to carpet the fields with roses. She herself with jeweled flowers paints the purpling year. With the breath of the western wind swells trembling bosoms into blossoming buds. She sprinkles the sparkling dewdrops, those glistening waters left by the winds of night. Look, those tears are trembling in their downward falling force. Each little drops a world trying to check its fated fall. Look, those dark red flowers are confessing their inner shame. The tears that the stars let fall on tranquil nights will strip those virgin breasts from their red wet cloaks. Venus in the morning will tell the dewy roses to wed. Roses made from the blood of the Paphian, made from Cupid's kisses made from jewels and flames and the sun's red rays. Tomorrow they'll cast off the shame that lurks in their fiery cloaks as one by one they take their marriage vows. Tomorrow he will love who has never loved. Tomorrow he who has loved will love again. Here the poet promotes marriage rather than seduction, but that becomes rare in later poetry. A variation on the theme of the bloody rose is another brief poem by Floris. The rose was Cupid's smile, or from her comb dawn drew it forth, dawn of the lustrous hair, or haply Venus was caught by briars, and on the sharp thorns this her blood remained. Blood is, of course, associated with the loss of virginity, or defloration. 
a vivid work of art conveying this flowery metaphor, is Jean-Honoré Fragonard's The Sacrifice of the Rose, in which a lightly clad maiden swoons as Cupid simultaneously embraces her and sacrifices her rose on an altar, presumably to himself. The image of young love, loss of virginity, and blood were tightly linked in European tradition. In addition, Venus was often depicted as a fierce goddess capable of great violence. The love she fostered was not all hearts and flowers. Blood could flow as a result in more than one sense. Remember that her son Cupid shoots lovers with his arrow. In another florist poem, he is stabbed by a rose thorn, and the poet underlines the frequent link between the beauty of the bloom and the sting of the thorn. Venus a garden had, rose bushes round, its lady's darling plot, once seen, beloved. Her boy, in random haste to cull the blooms and crown his tresses, pricked with pointed thorn his marble fingers. Soon, as pain stabbed limbs and blood-stained hand, the teardrop bathed his eye. In rage he seeks his mother with his plaints. Whence comes it, mother, that the roses hurt? Whence fight thy flowers with hidden arms? They war on me. The flower's hue is the same as blood. There is a related tradition begun by a Hellenistic poet known as the Pseudo-Theocritus, according to which Cupid complains to his mother about having been stung by a bee, and she replies that his pain is nothing compared to that of the lovers stung by his arrows. There are many later versions, including one by Robert Herrick, another by Thomas Moore, and paintings and drawings of the subject by artists such as Alfred Dürer, Lucas Cranach, Antoine Jean Gros, and Benjamin West. This link between love and suffering is one of the most powerful and pervasive influences of the classical world on later European literature and art. So already we see that the rose has a certain ambivalence about it. A bed of roses is a charming idea, but a crown of thorns is a fearsome instrument of torture. But even separated from its thorns, the rose delivers a threat along with its promise of delight, the threat of aging which the first forest poem highlighted. There are many such flowery carpe diem poems. One of the most straightforward is a sonnet by the 16th century French poet Pierre de Ronsard, Je vous envoie un bouquet que ma main. The translation I'm using is not very poetic, but it is blunt and clear. I'm sending you a bouquet that my hand just picked among these blossoming flowers. Tomorrow they would have fallen had no one picked them today. Let this be an unmistakable lesson to you. Your beauty, although it is flourishing, in little time will be gone, and like flowers it will suddenly perish. Time is fleeing. Time is fleeting, my lady. Alas, not time, but we are fleeting, and soon we will lie under stone, and of the loves we now speak there will be no more news when we are dead. Thus, love me now while you are still beautiful. Falling petals as symbols of the brevity of life are commonplaces in Chinese and Japanese poetry, of course, where cherry and plum blossoms usually bear this message, but in Europe the flower most often used is the rose. Another straightforward articulation of the theme is the speech of John Milton's brutish Comus trying to seduce a virtuous lady. Again, an aging woman is compared to a withered rose. A vermeil-tinctured lip is a bright red one, a youthful lip. 
List in the first line means listen, and cozened means deceived. List, lady, be not coy, and be not cozened with that same vaunted name virginity. Beauty is nature's coin, must not be hoarded, but must be current, and the good thereof consists in mutual and partaken bliss, unsavory in the enjoyment of itself. If you let slip time like a neglected rose, it withers on the stalk with languished head. Beauty is nature's brag and must be shown in courts, at feasts, and high solemnities where most may wonder at the workmanship. It is for homely features to keep home. They had their name thence. Coarse complexions and cheeks of sorry grain will serve to ply the sampler and to tease the housewife's wool. What need a vermeil tinctured lip for that? Love darting eyes or tresses like the morn. There was another meaning in these gifts. Think what, and be advised. You are but young yet. In the previous century, Shakespeare's thesis in A Midsummer Night's Dream offers his daughter Hermia a stern choice between the barren life of a nun and marriage to Demetrius, the young man he has chosen for her. In this passage, it is virginity which is thorny. Therefore, fair Hermia, question your desires. Know of your youth, examine well your blood, whether, if you yield not to your father's choice, you can endure the livery of a nun. For I, to be in the shady cloister mewed, to live a barren sister all your life, chanting faint hymns to the cold, fruitless moon, thrice blessed they that master so their blood to undergo such maiden pilgrimage. But earthlier happy is the rose distilled than that which, withering on the virgin thorn, grows, lives, and dies in single blessedness. Many people know the line, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, without realizing that it is the first line of Robert Herrick's To the Virgins to make much of time. Like Thesis' speech, it is an admonition to marry young. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, old time is still a-flying, and this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. The glorious lamp of heaven, the sun, the higher he's a-getting, the sooner will his race be run, and nearer he's to setting. That age is best, which is the first, when youth and blood are warmer, but being spent, the worse and worst time still succeed the former. And be not coy, but use your time, and while ye may go marry, for having lost but once your prime, you may forever tarry. If you're wondering how durable these marriages based on youthfully warm blood could be in the long run, keep in mind that the average human lifespan used to be much shorter than it is today, especially for women who frequently died quite young in childbirth. The argument that time is short and love urgent had greater plausibility in ages when many people could expect to die in their 20s or 30s. The most famous Carpe Diem poem in English using the symbol of the rose is from the 17th century, Edmund Waller's Go, Lovely Rose. It takes the form of an envoi, a speech delivered to a messenger to be delivered to someone else. In this case, a lady the poet desires, but who is reluctant to give herself to him. The poet tells the rose to go to her that wastes her time and me. In this line, the word waste is used in the sense of wasting away. The poet is withering for lack of affection, and time is a-wasting. He begins by flattering her beauty, by comparing it to that of the rose, 
but then goes on to urge her to display her beauty and accept his admiration. There may well be here a suggestion that she should undress. The final stanza is a shocker, the thorn in this rose poem. He tells the rose to die after having delivered its message as a reminder to the woman how brief a time she has to be both young and beautiful. As in so many poems, seize the day here means seize the man. Go, lovely rose, tell her that wastes her time and me, that now she knows when I resemble her to thee how sweet and fair she seems to be. Tell her that's young and shuns to have her graces spied, that hadst thou sprung in deserts where no men abide, thou must have uncommended died. Small is the worth of beauty from the light retired. Bid her come forth, suffer herself to be desired, and not blush so to be admired. Then die, that she the common fate of all things rare may read in thee how small a part of time they share that are so wondrous sweet and fair. This theme of naked flowers being held up as an example to bashful beauties is made even more strikingly in a poem famously set to music by John Dowland, Come Away, Come Sweet Love. In the third and final stanza, roses are mentioned under the label Fair Cyprian Flowers. Cypris is another name for Venus, and these are certainly meant to be roses. But the daring touch here is that the lilies, so often identified with purity and the Virgin Mary, take on a much more erotic meaning through a blasphemous allusion to a parable of Jesus, which can be found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? In this parable, Jesus is referring to the lily's natural beauty, as being its God-given garment. But the poet suggests that its true beauty is its bare self and urges the young woman to strip naked. Building on his daring biblical allusion, he suggests also that an insistence on wearing clothes is a sign of vanity and sinful pride. The path of virtue, he suggests, is the path of naked love. The Carpe Diem theme is dealt with much more subtly in this poem than in Waller's, but there are repeated references to the need for haste, which clearly echo that tradition. Wastes, in the second stanza, again means, is passing away. She is wasting time, but what is being said is that time itself is wasting away. Note that naked morn alludes to a Homeric formula, according to which the dawn blushes red as she rises naked from the bed of night. In the line, pleasure, measure, love's delight, measure means dance. Here's the entire poem. Come away, come, sweet love, the golden morning breaks. All the earth, all the air of love and pleasure speaks. Teach thine arms then to embrace and sweet rosy lips to kiss and mix our souls in mutual bliss. Eyes were made for beauty's grace, viewing, ruing love's long pain, procured by beauty's rude disdain. Come away. Come, sweet love, the golden morning wastes. 
while the sun from his sphere his fiery arrows casts, making all the shadows fly, playing, staying in the grove to entertain the stealth of love. Thither, sweet love, let us high, flying, dying in desire, winged with sweet hopes and heavenly fire. Come away, come, sweet love, do not in vain adorn beauty's grace that should rise like to the naked morn. Lilies on the river's side, and fair Cyprian flowers new-blown desire no beauties but their own. Ornament is nurse of pride, pleasure, measure, love's delight. Haste then, sweet love, our wished flight. Another interesting variation on the theme of sending roses to a woman the poet is courting is depicted in Ben Jonson's To Celia, where he interprets her refusal of the gift as a kind of involuntary gift of herself. The roses come back smelling not of their native fragrance, but of her even sweeter bodily aroma. He deliberately varies the Carpe Diem theme by saying that he sent her the roses, hoping that they would never wither under the influence of her transcendent beauty, which suggests powers of prolonging youthful loveliness. When the second stanza begins, I sent thee late a rosy wreath, the meaning is I sent it lately, recently. Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine. Or leave a kiss but in the cup, and I'll not look for wine. The thirst that from the soul doth rise doth ask a drink divine. But might I have Jove's nectar sup, I would not change for thine. I sent thee late a rosy wreath, not so much honoring thee as giving it a hope that there it could not withered be. But thou thereon didst only breathe, and sensed it back to me. Since when it grows and smells, I swear, not of itself, but thee. It is clear that the messages roses bear to women in traditional European poetry are as much threatening as flattering. Some seem downright insulting. They come from an age when men were confident of their supremacy, and the breaking down of women's resistance was depicted as a kind of amusing game. The poets see no need to describe their own attractiveness. That is taken for granted. They need only persist to succeed. Even when in Johnson's case the poet is rebuffed, he perseveres in courting her by writing this poem. Today he might be viewed as a stubborn stalker. The Carpe Diem love poem died out as the Romantic era began, where cynical, manipulative attitudes toward love fell out of fashion. And men like these ceased to be regarded as charming and amusing and were instead disdained as vile seducers. The new mood is clearly reflected in Robert Burns' famous poem, A Red, Red Rose. In the first stanza, the youthful beauty of the woman is emphasized, but the rest of the poem, instead of warning her that this beauty will soon fade, is devoted to declarations by the poet that he will love her forever. Oh, my love's like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love's like a melody that's sweetly played in tune. As fair art thou, my bonnie lass, so deep in love am I, and I will love thee still, my dear, till all the seas gang dry. Till all the seas gang dry, my dear, and the rocks melt with the sun. I will love thee still, my dear, while the sands of life shall run. And fare thee well, my only love, and fare thee well a while, and I will come again, my love, though it were ten thousand mile. Most rose poems are addressed to women. But let us conclude by looking at two exceptional works 
in which the man is compared to a rose. The first is Shakespeare's sonnet number 54. We know it is addressed to a young man rather than a young woman, not only because he is called a lovely youth, but because it belongs to a whole sequence of sonnets, many of which are unambiguously addressed to the same young man. Shakespeare distinguishes the transitory beauty of the rose with its lasting fragrance, suggesting a sort of parallel between the body and soul. Keep in mind that older roses were much more fragrant than the tea roses which dominate today's gardens. As the sonnet goes on, it is clear he is thinking of the distilling of roses into a perfume which can long outlive the blossoms it is made from. He contrasts it with lesser flowers which have the beauty and the thorns of the rose but lack its delightful odor. He then gives the poem a typically Shakespearean twist by stating that the odor of this young man will last because Shakespeare is writing this poem about him, and the poem will spread his fame down the ages. Shakespeare may have been vain about his own abilities, but it is justified vanity, for although the identity of the young man in question has long been lost, we still read and admire his account of the young man's beauty. Oh, how much more doth beauty beauteous seem by that sweet ornament with truth doth give. The rose looks fair, but fairer we had deem for that sweet odor which doth in it live. The canker blooms have full as deep a dye as the perfumed tincture of the roses. Hang on such thorns and play as wantonly when summer's breath their masked buds discloses. But for their virtue only is their show. They live unwooed and unrespected, fade, die to themselves. Sweet roses do not sow. Of their sweet deaths are sweetest odors made. And so of you, beauteous and lovely youth, when that shall fade, my verse distills your truth. The last poem is my favorite of all Rose Love poems, E. E. Cummings' Somewhere I Have Never Traveled. He is most frequently remembered for his innovative typography, using mostly lowercase letters, unconventional punctuation, parentheses, etc. But he was also a great love poet, and this is one of the greatest love poems of all times. Instead of oozing, overbearing self-confidence like the others, Cummings pictures himself in complete awe of his beloved and her effect on him. As a modern man, he thinks of love as the opening of hearts to each other, rather than the piercing of hearts with an arrow. The woman's power is mysteriously subtle as well. The final line marvels at the way she opens and encloses him like a spring rain, whose power lies in a multiplicity of dainty raindrops. Throughout the poem, he pairs images of strength with images of delicacy. The result is a moving portrait of a man in love. Somewhere I have never traveled, gladly beyond any experience, your eyes have their silence. In your most frail gesture are things which enclose me, or which I cannot touch because they are too near. Your slightest look easily will unclose me, though I have closed myself as fingers. You open always petal by petal myself, as spring opens, touching skillfully, mysteriously, her first rose. Or, if your wish be to close me, I and my life will shut very beautifully, suddenly, as when the heart of this flower imagines the snow carefully everywhere descending. 
Nothing which we are to perceive in this world equals the power of your intense fragility, whose texture compels me with the color of its countries, rendering death and forever with each breathing. I do not know what it is about you that closes and opens. Only something in me understands the voice of your eyes is deeper than all roses. Nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.